Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. And we believed that if we created a place that people wanted to work, that we could continually get them work that challenged them and respect how they wanted to work, that it could be pretty great. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. The gig economy wasn't a thing in 2002 when Amy Langer and John Folkstead launched Salo, a Minneapolis-based professional services firm that got its start placing senior-level finance experts on project work and soon expanded to human resources, consulting, and more. Today, Salo is a national firm with more than 900 employees, and the company recently hit a major milestone, $100 million in annual revenue. Amy and John are still 50-50 owners of Salo, but they've recently stepped away from day-to-day management, which makes this a really fascinating time to hear Amy's reflections on the business she started as a new mom in her early 30s, at a time when remote work wasn't a thing, and senior-level contract work was pretty unusual. Her forward-thinking take on work culture and a people-first mentality has won Amy national accolades and attention, and it's never been more relevant than at this moment when we're all trying to adjust to a new way of working and finding balance. Today, Amy serves on the boards of Health Partners and Greater MSP. She's a tireless volunteer, a mentor to entrepreneurs, and the consummate connector. She's one of those people you'll typically find in rooms where big decisions and changes are being made, and most of the people around her probably don't realize that Amy is a farm girl at heart. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm in a rural area, and the successful people that I was around were were farmers, were people that had land. Um, it wasn't a corporate environment. Um, teachers, mm-hmm. um, those that had had professions. So I wouldn't say when I was a little kid I wanted to be an accountant or a business <laughs> owner, although I've reflected upon it many times. And farmers really are entrepreneurs. Sure, farmers are. You know, they <laughs> really set their own schedules, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is set every day. They're hard workers. Um, they have to create what they what they have. Yeah. And so I I commonly now think back and go, well, of course I was going to be <laughs> an entrepreneur in some way, but I I don't know if that's entirely true. No, but I mean I think you're definitely onto something. We've had several successful, very urban entrepreneurs on the show who come from a background, who grew up on a farm, or who have farmers in their family. So yeah. I think that's there's some, definitely something to that. Was it expected that you would grow up and work on the farm or take it over? Did you think you would stay there or did you always want to leave? Oh, well, these are some of the fun stories. It wasn't all fun. I don't know if you know this, but 
we had two farms. Both my grandparents had farms. And then we um, ended up on working on one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the 80s were rough for family farms, including mm-hmm. ours. And there was a time where our, our farm went under. Uh, my dad left. Um, he got remarried and really left my mom with three kids, mm. um, a failing farm. She never worked outside the home hmm. um, and no education beyond high school. Yeah. And so that's the time where we really went and my grandparents, who have always been a big part of my life, um, were very helpful in um, getting us to where we need to be. Sure. And that's really how we went through high school. So at that time, you know, I was always fairly gifted academically. I've always been involved in a million different things. You know, I played basketball. I would, you know, run a little track. I would, as part of the National Honor Society, I would, <laughs> I was the vice president of our class. Of like, course you, you name were. it. Okay. Like, that was my thing. And yeah. I kind of went heavy into that. And just said, this is my opportunity, and this is how I'm going to um, take care of myself going hmm. forward. It was a huge pivot point, as yeah. you can imagine. Yep. Um, and then I put myself through Michigan State. I worked all through school, 30 to 40 hours a week. I, I did tons of jobs, um, sometimes two or three at a time, to be able to piece them together to have enough money. Did you feel, do you feel like if you can think back to to that that time were you thinking I want to I just want to be in business and and be successful and make sure that I have enough money to take care of myself did you know did you think that meant going to a big company or starting something of your own Yeah I think well I know I was quite naive on a lot of different fronts I knew I wanted to be in business mm-hmm. I don't know why it just it kind of was always something I was super curious about and Mm -hmm. interested in. And I had gone to Chicago and I'd seen those big buildings. I'm like, I'm going to be in that office, you know, (laughs) sort of thing. Yeah. Um, And then I I got an accounting degree because somebody told me in business, it's one of the hardest, like if you can understand the true financials and you can understand the language of accounting, um, you can always do other things. And so I did that. And then one day someone's like, oh, well, if you're in accounting, you should really work for one of the big firms. And that's kind of how I got to KPMG. I was like, oh, how do you get to the big firms? They're mm-hmm. like, oh, you have to interview. Like, it's, And you did it. I just sort of always listened. And thank goodness people were whispering good things. And you and you liked that. I, I would think that I mean, the thing about you, Amy, is like you are just always I've never seen you unpolished, even when you think you're just being like casual, even today. Like you're just always you're so polished. You're so professional. Were you just born that way? I mean, did oh, you? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. That's hilarious, actually. Oh, it's true. <laughs> I don't see myself as possible. I like, never oh. feel grown up enough when I'm with you. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, I'm constantly in rooms that I had never seen before. That's how I always think about it. So I always feel like, you know, the first time I walked into KPMG was the first high rise I had really ever been in. It was the first time I was ever in the office. So. I feel like a constant learning, observing what's happening, what are people that are successful, what are they doing, 
how do I put my best foot forward? Like I'm always assessing that Mm -hmm. um, still today. Mm -hmm. I still find myself in places where I'm like, holy cow, there's a lot to learn here. Yeah. But you don't let that intimidate you. You see it almost as an opportunity. Yeah. I don't I don't know why. I guess I never (laughs) thought I'm intimidated quite often. Um, But then, yeah, I kind of always look at it as like, well, yeah, well, what would it take to fit in here? How what do I need to learn? How do I um, how do I double down on that? So you ended up at um, Robert Half, Mm -hmm. which is a a big um, staffing uh, consultancy. Um, and it was from there that you left to start your own thing. What what was it? When did the 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 wheels start spinning and make you think like I I want to have my own business? Where where what opportunity did you see? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things at KPMG. I loved it. So if I can go back there, I loved sure. the culture. I loved how really they were connected to their alumni for long term. It was all about how do you learn? How do we provide the best quality? What do we do? And I I feel like that was amazing. Um, I really wasn't gifted at the actual work. Um, I was great on the teams. I loved it. But the true accounting work was a challenge for me. And I could see that it really came easy to other people. And so going to Robert Half was, I would I've always sort of done this assessment. I don't know how or why, but I've always just sort of said, what, where, do I, where do I excel and how do I do more of that? Mm-hmm. And so going to Robert Half was really, how can I be in front of more clients? How can I use sort of these gifts that I have to be able to be successful that way while still having my base of you know, finance? Like mm-hmm. I'm not throwing that away, um, but how do I use it? And so... Robert Half allowed me that. Like the work there, I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I excelled. I did well. Um, I managed people. I managed an office. That office was top in the world for them at the time. And really, they were starting more of a senior level business that they hadn't had before. Um, it's also where I met John Folkstead. Mm-hmm. He hired me there. Um, mm-hmm. And so we worked together there we did multiple different things. We didn't always work directly together. Um, sometimes we were peers. There were times I took a national job for them. So I got to travel the country and start to see what were people doing in other places. And I was traveling like six days a week. And I loved that. Again, I was in places that I'm like, okay, you know, I'm learning here. What, mm-hmm. what do I need to do? How do I continue to do what I'm supposed to do and continue to learn and be? Um, in the meantime, I was also um, now married, and um, you know we really wanted to start a family, and that was very challenging being gone six sure. days a week. Yep. And I had made this commitment that I would really focus on my professional career, but then at some point I would, um, you know, that we would really work on it. So I was at a point of inflection mm-hmm. anyway, and so being at a point of inflection. And there were, while I loved the work at Robert Half, um, it was a big machine. Mm -hmm. And I could see that there was a limit to what I would be able to do there and still hold my own values and still hold what I thought it needed to be. I'm just curious what the conversations were between you and John as you're trying to put this thing together. 
Well, we both had thoughts of what it could be. And um, some of that we tried to do within it. And so I think coming off the road, I was going to have to start something new again, whether it was start my own book of business, run another, you know, run something like my job was shifting. And, and, you know, there was a time John and I were on a plane together. And I was being offered multiple jobs, one of which was to move back to Michigan, um, which I heavily was thinking about. And with Robert Half. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John and I were just talking on the back of this. We were in the back of a plane and um, I just said, what if? And I said, you know, I don't think I'll be here until I retire. And John's like, what if we did something? Mm-hmm. And so, and, yeah. And you knew that you liked the space of um, of, of what? Of, of helping provide consultants, con- contract work? I mean, was that what was, what was kind of the crux of the, the actual work piece that you liked or wanted to create? If we think back to 2001 and we started in 2002, so around that time, it was after 9-11 um, and what we were really thought was possible, um, which is crazy to think about now, but if you think back 20 years, mm-hmm. people weren't doing contract work for a living. Those that were working jobs like that we see our mainstream now of I'm going to work for a while, not work for a while, I'm going to have some flexibility. At the time, you know, when we would talk to clients, like we can get people who are really good to do project work for you, Mm -hmm. they would say, you're nuts. And when we would talk to individuals and say, like, we just always felt that there were people who should be working like this, who who wanted, whether it was flexibility, but they didn't want flexibility to give up to be great at what they did. They wanted to be great and have have work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Um, But that really... It wasn't mainstream then. And we believed that if we created a place that people wanted to work, that we could continually get them work that challenged them and respect how they wanted to work, that it could be pretty great. (laughs) That it didn't have to be this big machine where you can't do this or you have to do it this way or this is how you have to charge people or this is how this is the only meetings you can have. Like, I get that, and that made sense. Um, you know, Robert Half is a publicly traded company. They have to be on the quarters, and we just thought, if we could think long-term, if we could think about the relationships that we're creating versus the transaction at hand, how could this be a long-term play for everybody? Hmm. Like, when we talk to someone, let's say it's not about them today doing this type of work, but how do we help them get to their next spot, regardless if there's um, an immediate payback. And did you know at that time that there were enough companies out there that wanted contract help, that wanted, you know, to not hire an HR person or accountant and just wanted somebody to come in? Did you know there was going to be a need? Well, there weren't enough (laughs) at the time. (laughs) I mean, at the same time we were talking really amazing people into doing this work. Mm -hmm. We also had to talk companies into seeing that it was a solution. Hmm. See, 
at that time, it was more lighter level work that was ever done on a temporary or staffing type basis. It was very rare that it would be more senior level. Um, Companies but, didn't consider that they didn't have to hire someone full time to right? do high level and work. It was it was a lot of times if it was very urgent or like something happening. Even then, there was this note of skepticism, like, really, mm-hmm. you think we could get someone? Um, when we were doing this, you know, there were multiple other around the time that were popping up. I think the biggest differential for us at the time, which continues to be the case, is this relationship over the transaction. We always thought about we can lose a deal if we're doing what's right for the company and we're doing what's right for the consultant and mm. we're doing what's right for the, you know, the employee matters. And Many times we would say the employee actually matters more, whereas a lot of our competition was like, whatever the client says goes. Mm. And that is a hard, it's easy to say and hard to execute because you have to lose things to follow your values. And we've always been willing to lose a deal if because the relationship mattered. So once you and John had this idea and you knew you both were wanted to do it, did you did you both leave the next day and get started? I mean, how much of a plan did you have when you when you set out? We had no plan. Okay. Um, we had no plan whatsoever. Um, 9-11 happened. Okay. So we were still both working. 9-11 happened. And there were a few things that happened that just is sort of the like the straw that broke the camel's back for yeah. me. And um, so really two days after that, I gave notice. Wow. Um, and John, fairly after that. And at Were you the, living in Minneapolis at that time? I was, I was always living in Minneapolis. I okay. was traveling. So I was in California at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you have kids? N- we did not have kids. Okay. And, you know, it was, we both had non-competes. That we believe strongly in. Um, we think, you know, we did nothing during that time. So it was kind of like we didn't know exactly what we were going to do. We didn't know if we were going to be together. We didn't mm. know if it was Salo, but we knew we had some time, a year really, to sit out um, an agreement that we signed that was like, well, we'll explore different things. We wow. could all go work somewhere else, we could do something different. You weren't scared. Uh, I don't know. You just figured you figured you could get another job. <laughs> More naive, I think. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I've the, always felt like that. I'm like, well, if this doesn't work out, I can always go back and be an accountant somewhere. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not I anymore. Mean, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but that's hard for a lot of people to take that risk, especially not having it fully baked or knowing knowing even that there that there's going to be a you know a clientele for the business. Yeah, I think at the time. I had finally paid off my student loans, mm-hmm. um, which was really great. I had a supportive system. Um, my husband was very supportive. We didn't have kids yet, which in hindsight, I'm like, how did, how did we, you know, sort of think through that and do? And yeah. we, we, took our, we took a second mortgage on our house. Wow. Um, so it was kind of, we would have been in a rough spot. If we wouldn't have at least made that money back, we had no, we started in the hole. 
Hmm. That's what I'll say. <laughs> so how did Salo start? First of all, talk about the name. How Was that hard to decide? Yeah, it's and, super hard to name a company. Yeah. Yes, um, because a lot of things are taken. Mm-hmm. And um, we wanted something short, having a little energy in it, you know, just sort of two, two to three syllables. And we wanted something connected, not made up. Like I always said, how can it be connected to the earth? Um, this might be a little stretch. But <laughs> Salo is a town in Finland. Um, and it was on the King's Highway and used to be a place of, you know, like a hub of activity where people would come and connect and network. And, you know, we kind of came across it. It mm-hmm. was two syllables. Mm. It hadn't been taken. What's day one at Salo? I mean, is it this is the two of you? Did you hire staff? Did you how did you actually start? Day one at Salo was um as John is always coined to say, all we really needed was a phone, phone book, and a chair, and we didn't really need the chair. <laughs> it's kind of funny. And there were times where, um, like, the chair was borrowed, and, you know, we really used our money. You know, we we were really frugal at the time on everything except for what was employee-facing, client-facing, and really marketing. So the only money we really spent, we've always believed in marketing, and to have something, we wanted something bigger than the two of us. Mm -hmm. We believed that we needed expert help to kind of help us get there. So that was one thing that we did at the beginning is we really got an external um, group. And, and some of this was like beg, borrow, and steal. Like, hey, I know this person that kind of does marketing. Will you kind of help us out? And mm-hmm. we don't know if we're going to do it. I mean, you just sort of find that there's like this entrepreneurial underground of people that want to help you. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget those people. They were amazing. Did you have a pool of contractors and then go look for clients or places to place them? Or did you look for the clients first? Well, that's a chicken and egg. Yeah. Yes, both. You know, we were doing both. Um, The week we started, there was a Star Tribune article that came out in the business section that said there are 250 unemployed CFOs. And it'll take about, it's like a two-year backlog to get everybody reemployed. Okay? So hmm. keep in mind, a year after 9-11. Sure. And we looked at each other. We're like, okay, you know, we're starting a contract, CFO, controller business. All these people are unemployed. We said, let's go find them. Let's get to know them. And so we set out to really network and conduct and create relationships with people. And we were a lot of times a breath of fresh air because they had spent, many of them had spent like the last four, five, six months looking for work, feeling like, oh, everybody's saying we have nothing, go away. We're like, come on in. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll do it. And actually, we spent a lot of time really working on people's resumes. How were they presenting themselves? What were they doing? Giving real candid feedback of, I can see why you might be stuck right now. And it might feel bad in the moment, but we really felt like if we can help anybody get to a next place, we have got nothing left. We've got nothing to lose. We have nothing. Yeah. Starting from zero. So when did you have your first sign that this is going to work? 
we're on to something here. I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> um, um, the other thing that happened, so if I think back, like for sure hard work, for sure a good idea. There's also some luck and timing involved, and it was a time Sarbanes-Oxley. So we get started. Um, Sarbanes-Oxley comes out, and part of that is the reporting requirements for companies. And now they need more accountants than they had before, and they mm. don't know what Sarbanes-Oxley is going to require. What so, Can you explain what that is for those of us non-accounting people? Yes. Yeah, so after Enron mm-hmm. went down the federal government put in these rules to say we need different reporting um, of entities for clarity to be able to help investors make decisions Mm -hmm. and to help kind of watch companies, um, watchdog for companies. And with that, there were really specific rules um, that needed to be followed. So all of a sudden, these large companies had to comply with this regulation, and you know they were already overworked. Keep in mind they had done layoffs. You know it was we were coming out of a recession after nine eleven, and so now all of a sudden they needed more people, mm. and so it kind of created there was regulation created some need at the time, um, which created more demand in the marketplace, and we weren't doing a ton of. Sarbanes actually work, but because it created more demand, there was some opportunity for us. Okay. And of those people that we interviewed and tried to help over the time, they ended up getting work and they became some of our biggest clients. Hmm. You know, and we didn't know that mm-hmm. when at the time we're like, well, we might as well do what we believe to be is right. And hopefully it'll pay off. And sort of this abundance mindset has always been part of Salo. So how long did it take to how long did it take to make a profit? So the first three months we made three hundred thousand in revenue. Wow. Um, So we started in September. By December we had that. Um, And like about how many clients did you have? About how many contractors did you have? Question. Do you remember? I used to know like, <laughs> all okay. of it because I was still doing payroll. Keep okay. in mind, like there were only two of us. Yeah. Oh, and another thing, the first week that we started Salo, I was starting to get sick and realized I was pregnant. Oh, wow. So the first three months were like, <laughs> so what you're, is going on? Yes. You're so, incubating a company and a and human. And human, yeah, um, right. which was happening. But then... We had to start thinking through what were we going to do. We needed more people inside. Um, I, you know, again, I was doing the accounting. I, John and I split stuff up. So, mm-hmm. but m- my work was, I was doing payroll. You know, I was kind of doing the accounting. I was doing the billing mm-hmm. and collections, and you know, I couldn't continue to always do that. And so, okay, when how many did we have? We probably had. I don't know. Um, by the end of the year, we probably had four or five people working with us. Working full-time? Working full-time. Or, okay. Um, well, as consultants. Got it. And then, you know, it wasn't until 2003 where we hired 
people internal to help with administration work. Um, we had a contract accountant to okay. help us do payroll. And the then support we hired system. A, a support system. And then we hired our first salesperson. Wow. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, as much as you, you had to convince people to, to work with Salo, you also you, you had to convince people on both sides, the employees and the client side. But it sounds like they got it and they understood the opportunity pretty quickly. It, it took a lot more. I guess I make it sound easier <laughs> than it was. Yes. You can imagine going to these big companies like, yeah, we are a company that's been around three months uh-huh. and we would like to work at Super Value. <laughs> you know, they're like, who are you? Yeah. Are you even going to be around? And the same was true with employees, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I think back to those companies and those people that believed in us early and gave us a shot. And it was one or two. And then we used those as examples for others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Super Values, uh, I bring it up because it was in the first full year of operation. We had about $1.8 million in revenue. And Super Value was over a million of it. Wow. And I had met the CFO or CEO at like an event once. And I just said, hello. I mean, kind of like, I mean, all he mm-hmm. can do is blow me off. But, and I said, we'd really like to do work. I've just started this company. Somebody had introduced us briefly and he's like, okay, give me a call. Um, I'll listen to you. And so I gave, there really wasn't email <laughs> as much. I mean, you did, but not it's as amazing much. amazing to think what's changed. So I reached out and he said, I will introduce you to my CFO mm-hmm. and then I'm out. I will do this as a favor. And I said, okay. So I talked to the CFO and she was like, yeah, sorry, like we're out. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I also knew a few people from my days at KPMG that were working there. And I went to them and I'm like, here's what we are doing. Do you have any needs? They're like, yeah, we are. We have a lot of need Mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll help you. And so they were actually the ones that pushed and said, can we use Salo? Can we use mm. Amy? And because they had kind of heard of us and the push from down below, they're like, fine, sure. we need people. Sure. If you yeah. can do it, we'll give you a shot, but reluctant. Yeah. And then once we got in there, we could leverage and say, hey, we're doing work at right. Super Value. And the opportunity is they don't they're not having to hire people. They're not having to pay them benefits. They're not having to take on that burden. They can use them on a project basis. And that that's kind of how people use it now. At that point, there was just so much work. What was mm-hmm. happening with them? Um, kind of they were growing at the time, plus the Sarbanes-Oxley requirement, and they couldn't hire fast enough, and you just need it. It created some gaps. Mm-hmm. And um, lucky for us, the accounting deadlines come every month. <laughs> <laughs> and so if there is a gap, you kind of have to fill it. And that urgency need, um, people have to make decisions, and mm-hmm. that, that helps us. Sure, <laughs> still does. sure. So once you kind of got into a groove and Salo grew pretty steadily for a while, then you hit on some rocky times. What, what happened? Yeah, so the financial recession um, hit Those us. darn recessions. Those darn recessions. Although, you know, every recession we've used it as an opportunity to create a new business or do something like almost like double down and be bold. Yeah. 
So um, where was Salo when 2008 rolled around? You'd been in business for what, seven six, years. Six, seven years. Okay. And then had our, our we had never had a day that was um, steady, that was steady or down. It mm-hmm. had only ever grown day by day, week by week. And so we went from that to a 25% drop in one year. Mm. Um, and then went down to like a 34% drop. So we were at a high of 47 million and went down to about 25 million in the period of a year. And that was rough. Just how rough? We'll hear after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best and Flanagan, with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best and Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. When your company's been a rocket ship and suddenly it falters, rebounding isn't easy. Let's hear how Amy did it and what she learned in the process. That was really rough. I think you question everything. Um, I think we were also, John and I were both getting used to what it was like to make money, um, what it was like to even be successful. We kind of didn't know that. Um, you know, the media loved us on our rise up. I was a 30-year-old. I had three children under three mm-hmm. when the company was three years old. Because uh, yeah, after Max, you, you know, had to two stop years. at a certain point. Like, you can't keep having yeah. a baby for every year of the company. <laughs> yeah, there was an article once that said I was pregnant 18 of the first 36 months of the business, oh which is true. And so a single and twins, three kids under three. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, this was a fun story. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we just weren't prepared. We weren't prepared, period. Mm-hmm. We did not know what was coming, <laughs> and there were a lot of things. So I would say that is probably one of the best inflection points that ever happened for Salo. I'm now, in hindsight, really happy that it was, but we had to get through a lot. We had to get through, are we going to be in partnership? Are we going to keep Salo? Like, what does this mean? How do we do it um, differently, do we want? Do we want to do it? And so, I would say there's three major things we did at that time. One, we got a coach to really mm-hmm. help us work better together. Um, we put in our first advisory board, really realizing, like, um, for me, it was before then. I always felt like as a leader, I had to know all the answers. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest realization I had is like, I actually don't have to know all the answers, but I have to ask a lot of questions. Mm. And this is where we started to get, you know, some outside perspectives, some outside help. And the third is we kind of put our next plan together. We put together really our first ever bona fide strategic plan. We put values of the organization together. We started to strategize and really think through what, what do we want our culture to be, not what it is. Mm-hmm. And that purposeful, intentional time um, got us out of that recession. And then we had steady, not as rocket growth, but steady growth thereafter. But we became a company based in values. We changed how we were operating, where we were going. 
um, you know, Salo always has the relationship over the transaction that's always been there, but we were able to codify it. We were able to talk about it. Like, what do we want? And be very, very intentional about it. Mm -hmm. And so what you see now from Salo is the work from then um, that I'm just super proud of. Do, when in terms of the the business itself, I would think in some ways that a recessionary period is actually helpful for a company like yours because corporations might be more reluctant to hire full time workers and and project based work is more appealing. Or do I have that wrong? Yeah, I mean it's really awesome to be t to talk about it. What happens first in companies is they say all contract labor has to go. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to preserve our employees that are here. And that makes sense. Sure. Um, so we typically, in a recessionary period, it sort of has to re-regulate. We're going to see a decline at first. And then oftentimes companies either cut too deep or there's projects. And remember, um, during this time also, we started the HR work um, of our business. So we were super niche, finance mm -hmm. and HR. And um, so both of those, you know, have some regulation, have some deadlines, have some needs that are helpful because you can't completely ignore that type of work. Um, but companies reset. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So suddenly they realize, yeah, I mean, after they, after they cut, then they realize they, they Then we needs. need it back. And yeah. so that flexibility... We have to not get scared when that happens, sure, right? Sure. Um, and one beautiful thing about Minnesota, and now we're national, but at the time, Minnesota um, and Chicago have a very, the business community, as you know, is very vast. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when one sector is doing well, another one might not. And we have that flexibility to go between sectors, too, which sure. is really nice. So and one of the things that helped you out, I mean, other than kind of getting organized and really thoughtful about what you wanted to be as a company and your culture, you added the HR division. You started adding other services. We added HR. That was before the recession, okay. actually. And during the recession, we decided to go to Chicago. Like, hey, uh -huh. when we're here, we might as well... <laughs> Why not? Okay. And did um, that open a lot of opportunity? It was really rough, quite <laughs> frankly. Yes. It finally is doing well. Okay. But that was another labor. That could be a whole podcast on itself <laughs> of what you commit to and what you do. Yeah. Um, it was, it opened some opportunities, but it, I would call it more of a better learning opportunity for us mm -hmm. and not really thinking, oh, you can go into a market do what you did before, and it's automatically going to work. Um, and so we had many, many different changes and mistakes and things that we had to figure out um, that were very costly at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad we stuck to it mm -hmm. and did it. And now it created the basis. Now we're a national company. And a lot of the learnings that we had from, from that experience has allowed us to be able to do it differently when we decided for the national expansion. 
Did you ever raise money along the way? Or no. Or it was, it was all just Still today. self-funded? Still today, John and I are 50-50 owners. Amazing. Um, we've always funded out of the profits of our business. We've always felt, again, that think long-term versus short-term rewards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to pop back to the beginning. We put in benefits for our employees, for our consultants, before we ever took a penny out of the company. So we continue, we've always, even still today, continue to fund through profits and we continue to fund what we believe is best, best for employees. Mm-hmm. So I went 22 months without any income hmm. and my house on a second mortgage. And that's what funded my part of it. And, you know, John's story is not that dissimilar. Yeah. Got to be stressful, but you obviously had the vision. It's got to feel amazing to think like, you know, now you look at how we work and how it's changing. I want to talk a little bit about that. But I mean, it's like you saw the future. You were so far ahead of the way people would want to work and and companies would work. How do you feel about that when you think about the just seismic shifts in, in culture and work habits today? It's a little overwhelming. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure at the time we're like, oh, this is all. We did not foresee, obviously, a pandemic and how people's lives would shift this dramatically. And again, there are some things that you kind of get thrown your way as a curveball. We always feel like we make our own luck. We're in a place to be able to accept that luck and take it and capitalize on it. And yet, we've always believed that there's not one way people should work. We've always believed that there are people who can engage their mind, but don't have to do it in what was then a traditional job. And, you know, we saw people coming out of the workforce that were brilliant and awesome. And we're like, well, could we just get you for a little bit? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it was like, what if you could only work 40 hours a week? Um, commonly, accountants um, work a lot. Mm-hmm. 50, 60, 70 hour weeks are, are common. And so working 40 hours feels part time sometimes. <laughs> and we really would help negotiate with clients and say, you can have this amazing talent. But how can we get this job to only get it? So we always, yeah, how can, (laughs) I guess, I guess. And so when you can engage someone and then they say, oh, my gosh, this is giving me time to be able to do this. It kind of motivates you to go to go forward. So what is your um, thought or advice or message to companies that right now are just really struggling with this, you know, People don't want to come back to the office. People want to work differently. And, you know, some some companies are ad- adaptable and it works just fine. Others really struggle with the loss of that traditional structure. I have to say, Allie, like I struggle with it, too. Hmm. Um, you know, I think we all do in different times because you're you're used to what you're used to. Mm-hmm. And you. You really need to think about. What are you going to hold on to that matters? And what 
can you give? Where where can you be open? And I'll give an example. In 2018, um, we promoted Lisa Brazanic to be our CEO going forward. We th- we had that vision back in the 2009 2010 when we did the strategic plan. Is we we wanted to get to a company that sort of needed professional management to take it to scale at the next time. So we worked all of that time to sort of say. How do we work ourselves out of that founder position to be able to have it more professionally managed? So that was, that was always the plan. She comes in and she's like, why are we always in suits and ties? And we're like, because that is who we are. And this uh-huh. is when she's like, really? <laughs> do you think it matters? It's like, like I said, you're always professional. Oh my gosh! You, what do you mean? People wear separates, not us. You know, and you know we've always had sort of this air of fun around us, like positive energy and things are fun. And so, and we we have people's careers and lives. When people come to us, they're in some version of transition, whether they're in transition with their career or if it's a company or a person coming to us that. They're struggling with being able to get their work done or not sure what to do. And so it was always like, to be able to do that, we have to be, you know, professional Mm, and fun. Yeah. And she's like, well, I think we can be professional. (laughs) And if you actually listen to our employees, they don't always want to do it how you guys do it. And Uh we get that's what got you to here. But is that what we need going forward? And it's like a light example, but it wasn't light for us at the time. We were bound in like, I don't know what to do if I wouldn't put on a suit. (laughs) So did that (laughs) give birth to casual Fridays or what came out of that realization? Oh, I think there's been many iterations. (laughs) Like um, there's been many iterations. But the, the point is when you ask about companies and what do they need to do, it's like, what are you holding on to that matters? And what are you holding on to that, that you want to continue? to the future and how does that how does that play into where you want to go mm-hmm. and i've always said there are people who will want it but once you want your culture you just have to own it and know mm-hmm. and if if we were to say we're going to be suit and tie you have to have you have to be in the office this many hours this is what you have to do we will get people and there will be consequences for that too. Mm-hmm. You might not get as many, you might not do. I mean, again, these are light examples, but they begin to extrapolate. Yeah. Well, so what, what would you have said then or even now about what matters? I mean, what what are kind of the, the core things, the fundamentals of Salo? Well, for us, our values matter. Um, and we stick to them. We hire on them. We fire on them. We we when something's wrong, we're like, ooh, what's wrong? And how do we put it back to those six things that we firmly believe in as our core? That's one. Um, also just sort of in and how can we test it? Mm-hmm. Can we be open? And if I think back to like to the early fast growth, I think if our employees came to us and said, hey, we're thinking about something different, we were in such a we were in such a different spot that we would have been like, no, this is the way. Mm -hmm. And I think really listening, um, I think really hearing, I think understanding. You'll always 
hear more than you are willing to do and able to do. Mm -hmm. But if you can start to see what do people want for that workforce and then um, put that and compare and contrast that with what are your values and what do you need and what do we need to shift? What do we need to stop doing? What do we need to start doing to move forward? That's what I would tell companies to do. I would ask them, you know, some people really want to come back to the office mm-hmm. and they want to come back full time. And then they come back to the office and it's empty. Mm-hmm. And so that's not what they want either. They want everybody back into the right, office. Right. So how do you do it in a way that maybe a team comes back certain days of the week? Or how do you do it? I just think we have to continue to show up and test and learn and be as open as we've ever been on what that looks like. And it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Salo was also, uh, I feel, ahead of its time in terms of your office itself, not just culture. But I just remember, you know, visiting your office kind of on the edge of downtown years before the pandemic. And it was open and there were, you know, you had people were like, I don't didn't you have like treadmill desks? And I mean, and it was it was a fun cool environment that at the time really stood out. It was not like Cubicleville. How did you how, how did you arrive at that? Well, I have to give John a lot of credit. Um, John's a ton of fun. OK, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. always is. Mm-hmm. He's, he would put fun first on everything. He's like, why would we do it if we're not going to have fun? Yeah. Enjoy the ride is what he would always say. And if we all we had is people, we mm-hmm. don't have assets other than people. And so it was always John always put that forward. How do we create an environment where people want to come? And let's test it. And colors were always important to us. We were like, why does an office have to look different than what you'd want in your own house? And so art, colors, um, different things, we just always thought, this is what we want. Yeah. Do other people want it too? And it turned out employees wanted it too. And turned out employees. And now every office wants to do what what you did years ago. Yes. Well, it's very interesting to even think about that. You know, we were in an open space. Yeah. So, you know, we're all in quarantine. We're all at home thinking we're never going to be together again. And all of a sudden, does our office become completely obsolete? Like we Mm. had no offices, there was Mm -hmm. no place for people to go. And so we had to think about it. Now, of course, you know, we have vaccinations every, you know, we're multiple years beyond it. And we're still trying to figure out how do we use our space. But I would say our leadership team now is saying, how do we create a place where people want to come? Yeah. Because otherwise, it's just as easy to log on at home. Right. I I spoke to Lisa, your CEO, recently, and she was saying just how much has changed in terms of some of your clients who used to want their salo workers in the office, you know, 50, 70, 80 percent of the time. Now that's totally reversed. They don't mind if they're in another state. They don't. I mean, that just at all everything has has changed. It's really been fantastic for us. Yeah. Um, Lisa and the whole team and our board has really helped position us really before this. Um, we knew there was a war on talent. We couldn't always see it exactly how it was going to play out. But we've been talking about 
good people are hard to find. We know that the baby boomers were retiring. We know that there's less of us coming up. We know that you need thought leadership in these organizations. And um, around the time that we made the shift, um, the leadership team and Lisa really said, we've got to double down on this employee side, take what we've always felt to be true and go out and do it. And so, you know, now, of course, it's incredibly hard. Everybody, it's always been hard to get talent for us. Um, And we've always worked at it. And that shift, along with the shifts that are happening in the marketplace, we're, I always I feel like we're finally at the right place at the right time. Some yeah. of the things that we've bet on you are were starting built to, for this. Are starting to like exponentially pay off and um how, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. How how do you see this whole um talent shortage, labor shortage playing out in the next couple of years in various industries? I think companies will relook at what they're doing, as always. I think it's sort of like you throw something up in the air, everything has to resort. I think companies will say, I am going to work from the office and there will be people that want to do it. I think others will say, we're never going to have an office again. And I think, I think we're all trying to figure out what we want along with companies are figuring out what they want. And I think some of it will settle, mm-hmm. right? We'll all settle into finding places that align with what, what we want. Right. Um, so that's that's one. I mean, definitely we're still in this mix where it's really wavy and mm-hmm. no yeah. one really kind of knows what to do. I also think technology will continue to improve. And I think how companies use technology with the available resources um, and, you know, the digital age and what's happening there. We're in a big we're in a big shift. Right. So. I think with those, how we work, I think will continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, companies need employees who are in leadership roles, in management roles. Do I believe every company should be made up fully of contractors? No. Fully of contingent staff? No. Um, but there is a right size of how do we keep a core to move the company forward and how do we bring in strategic use of external labor, mm-hmm. um, we're talking more and more about it. So not just because you're caught and somebody left or you're caught and you don't have something, but how do we use it as a real strategic tool? Mm-hmm. We're starting to see that in some of the progressive companies. Can you wow us with a few of the stats today? You are now in doing business, I believe, in 37 states, if I'm remembering what Lisa told me. Most of them. Yeah, I thought it was more than that. <laughs> okay, maybe but, it is. But maybe let's just is. keep with 37 because I know that won't be overstating. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, how many people work for Salo? How do you track that? We have and- about 900 employees, and we just surpassed a huge milestone. We just surpassed $100 million in revenue. Wow. Which is honestly... Um, a dream come true. Amazing. I am living a dream. It's really fantastic. The decision on your part to step out of the CEO role, I'm fascinated by. Were you totally ready to do that? How, I mean, it sounds like that was that was definitely planned for a long time. 
you were quite capable of, of leading this company and growing it. What made you feel like it was time to step out of the way? And how hard has it been to transition? Yeah, you know, John and I have had multiple conversations over the time and our our roles in owning the company and leading the company have always been fluid. And what worked in the early days stopped working with as much fluidity as we needed to be able to grow. And we could start to feel that. Like whatever you're in, there is a system that works and our system was sluggish. Hmm. And so I think we saw that. I think we we really believed to preserve our relationship as partners, as investors, as business owners. We knew we needed a shift. It's very hard to work multiple roles. Um, as an investor and then also as a CEO, if you are in both hats. And so how we, the decisions we made as owners, the decision you make as leadership um, is very different. Hmm. And we started to see it just not working. And we have the opportunity that we see lots of different companies all the time. And we see what happens when companies either sell or bring in new investments or these private equity firms come in, they almost always get rid of the founders, <laughs> right? Yeah. They're like, get you guys out. Let's get professional management and let's take this baby for a spin. Uh-huh. And so we're like, well, why don't we take it for a spin ourselves and wow. see what we can do? We still, we could change if we needed to. And so, um, and 17 years running a fast growth company is a long time. Every day I ran a company bigger than the day before, mm-hmm. or we were investing in a company and realizing that that didn't have to be all of me, that in an ownership um, role, I could do something different than I was doing in a leadership role. And, you know, I could take on different things for myself personally. Mm-hmm. So we know that you, I mean, you don't exactly sit idle. You're, no. you're not laying on a beach. You're on boards. You're, you're such an active mentor and volunteer. You're a mom. You do a million things. Is it hard, though? I mean, Salo is your baby. How involved are you, if at all, right now in the day-to-day? Yeah, it definitely has a big spot in my heart. Um, the leadership team runs the day-to-day. The leadership team and Lisa report to a board. Um, We've really given the board governance responsibilities, um, and John and I are involved as owners and investors. So, however, we're also known in the community. So many times when companies or CFOs or CEOs are kind of stuck, you know, they still call us. Mm -hmm. And so we still get to do some of the fun work. of the work kind of of our business development directors. And that's fun from time to time, but we kind of have the high level discussions and then pass it over to the company. Um, and, you know, we have a great relationship with Lisa and the team and the board and really as kind of owners and board members, we're involved with the strategy and how things go forward. And, you know, some days it's hard. Yeah. I mean, has there there been a moment where you're like, no, that's not the way I would do it? (laughs) So, yes, I think the words were over my dead body. (laughs) Um, But we are lucky to have a board that's like, how do we keep our eye on the big picture? Mm -hmm. How do we help? And 
you know, again, as we've seen other companies, we've seen owners come in and meddle in companies. And we've seen CEOs that say the worst day is when the owners walk in and try to do that. And so we really, we were committed. We had to commit because we were like, we've got one shot at this. So if we're ready, we got to do it. But then we, we've got to do it. Mm -hmm. And Lisa's gracious. She's given, (laughs) there are definitely times I'm like, I get a little crazy. Um, And thankfully, um, we work through it. But overall, John and my work was to work on ourselves to be able to get to this. And it's a lot. Mm -hmm. The owners have to be committed. Wow. And it is not easy. So you don't go into the office? Well, the first year afterwards, pre-pan, I think the pandemic helped us get our Sure. noses out of stuff too mm-hmm. um the first year after off after so from in 2018 i went into the office fairly regularly and still tried to stay out of it but i could still hear enough i i think it was good for the transition be for everybody because i was still involved but really purposefully wanting to give lisa space and i'm a big personality mm-hmm. and john is a big personality and so really going off when we had to all go off site and get us out of there, I think really allowed her to to shine yeah. and to really do it and kind of get us. So another lucky, yeah, <laughs> another sort of silver lining in a really tough time. They didn't have to, like, take your key away from you to get into no. the office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they talked about it. <laughs> So for you now at at this stage, what is what is important to you and and how have you how do you look at this next chapter for yourself as a founder, as a business leader? Yeah, I think the next uh, two to three years, I, I really like the work that I'm doing. Right. I really love where Salo is and how it's growing. I like my work on boards. I've been able to get some of my life balance um, just different sized, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost like right side. I don't know what's right sized mm-hmm. or wrong side. I will always uh, give a, uh, I will always go to work if, if there is an opening. Um, and so I'm, I'm working on what that next chapter will be, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I turned 50 and you know, 28 days. Uh-huh. So I'm excited for that. And I think we'll see. Yeah. Well, it's very exciting. And your involvement in the community is really just incredible. And obviously, n- networking has kind of been the key to your success all along. And I know you love that and thrive off of that. Um, any advice for founders out there? I mean, think about think about yourself when you were starting this company. What if you were doing it today in 2022? How much have things changed? especially for women founders? I think if I really think about it, I think some things have not changed at all. And I think in other ways it's changed greatly. There's an entrepreneurship ecosystem that exists in Minnesota mm-hmm. um, that is very purposeful. And it we're putting a lot of effort in terms of incubators, accelerators, capital, angel capital, early stage. Um, that's exciting. There is a lot of momentum. 
that exists to be able to support people with ideas. And I see that happening and it's really exciting. So mm -hmm. in that, that is, um, that's new and it's fun. When I think about advice, I think have an abundance mentality, really not thinking about what am I going to get out of this, but what am I going to give? I think the more I focus on how am I helping somebody else, it's crazy how much that comes back. And um, I have a real feeling of gratitude all the time. I really focus on what I'm grateful for, what I'm thankful for. And I, I'm not sure I did that in the early days. And mm. that's made a huge shift. I've always had an abundance mentality. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think, like, how do you take time to really, truly be grateful for all, everything, like mm -hmm. little things and big things. Like it's, it's really pretty amazing world. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and how wonderful to have the time now to, to kind of explore it and see what you want to do. Yeah, next. see what's next. Amy Langer, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us and, and offering so much advice and for everything you do for the Twin Cities and beyond. Yeah, thanks, Allie. I appreciate it. This was fun. fun. Well, Amy is one of those people, like so many guests on By All Means, who we're probably going to need a part two because you know there's going to be a big next chapter. It already has her involved in board work and mentoring entrepreneurs. And the theme, of course, is all about people. For more perspective on that and how it relates to your own business, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Chad Brinsfield is an associate professor and chair of the management department. Chad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, Allison. Nice to be here. Well, you heard it. You It was the first thing that jumped out at you when you heard Amy talking. It's all about the people. Salo is literally in the people business. That is what their their commodity is. And it's so important to making a business work. You actually teach uh, business students to, to think about the, the, the people side of it. How do you teach that? Well, well, that's a great question. It's a really, uh, from an academic standpoint, at least, it's a very multidisciplinary field. So we are a class, we draw heavily on social psychology, psychology, uh, study of emotions, but also philosophy, uh, anthropology, behavior economics. So that's the scientific part of it. But it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting class to teach. And again, it's called Leading Self and Others. And, you know, when I was in school, we got classes on leading others, but we didn't get classes on leading ourselves. Hmm. And I think that's, that's a really important part of it. Because one of the things that resonated with me in listening to Amy talk was how well she managed herself. You know, there's so much uncertainty, so much stress in, in navigating that startup space. And, um, you know, you have your, she mentioned, you know, not taking a salary for several years. She mentioned, uh, you know, mortgage on her house, things like that. It's like people don't appreciate how difficult that can be and to be able to manage yourself effectively through that. And, and not only as entrepreneurs, but also just as managers in any corporate environment, we see that the, the stress level is, you know, very high. People are getting burnt out. So how do you manage yourself and, uh, you know, stay grounded during all that? Right. Um, and, and you were saying also that that a lot of times it, it's not a, a business fails, not because the leader isn't smart enough. It's about maybe having enough self-awareness or, or knowing how to manage yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, a lot has been talked about about emotional intelligence, but, you know, and emotional agility. And uh, that's critically important. And how do you how do you have the self-discipline? How do you, you know, 
maintain that? How do you gain self-awareness? Since that's one of the things we talk about in the class. And, you know, there's a science behind that. It's pretty interesting. And, um, you know, so that's a big part of it. And uh, obviously, you know, the human side of the equation in general is, is huge. And, you know, one of the things I, I was on LinkedIn the other day, looking at a friend of mine's LinkedIn page, and I just thought it was interesting. He said, I'm responsible for managing 200 human assets. And I remember I called hmm. him up and I said, Dave, what is a human asset? And, <laughs> you know, and it's like, we have these terms. We have these terms like human capital, human assets, human resources, and it's people. And one of the things that came through also for me with Amy and, and listening to her talk was, you know, the real authentic caring for people and making that a priority. So I thought Man, that, that's, that really is great. Well, and there really couldn't be anything more timely than to talk about caring for people and thinking about their emotional state and well-being and how that relates to the work they do now, especially when so many of us are working remotely and, and work has changed so much. How are you thinking about that right now, both as a business person and in the academic sense? Gosh, the timing of this is, you know, incredible. Just this week and the last two weeks, really, you know, we had a pandemic and then we had the, the George Floyd social unrest associated with that. And these were all traumatic events for people. And then just when we think we're starting to come out of it, a war breaks out in Europe. Yeah. And, and you know, so I, I think just all these factors just you know, let alone the, you know, economic difficulty that a lot of people are facing and have been facing. And, um, you know, so it's, we, we've got to put, um, you know, well-being uh, of employees as a priority. And I, I teach a, a lot of MBA students that work for a lot of major corporations in this town. And so many of them are under so much stress. So, you know, they're working 60 hours a week. They can't balance their family obligations. And they're feeling that. And so I think, um, you know, we got to make um, caring for others and employee well-being a team sport. We all hmm. have to look at this as a, as a real priority and uh, for our long-term success. How can you have a healthy society if you don't have healthy work? And, um, you know, unfortunately, if you look at the statistics anyway, it's like, you know, stress is, uh, is killing people. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, make it a team sport. I like that. Lots to think about and lots to do clearly. But it's nice to see that we're at least talking about it and realizing that it needs to be a priority. Yeah. Well, Chad Brinsfield, thank you so much for your expertise and perspective. Really enlightening. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to learn more about our show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find all the past episodes right there. Lots to dig into. If you like what you heard, take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Forlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Bye.